welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress.
you should all say we understood it because that was the language of heaven. We're all going to learn Swahili. We're going to learn Talaga. Tagalog. See? I need to learn it. <laughs> I better not say any more. I'll make a fool out of myself. Someone said, Lord, keep us from making fools out of ourselves. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you today for this opportunity that we can worship you because Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross so that we could offer praise worship back to you. Amen. These questions keep popping up uh, whenever anyone considers the sanctuary message. What's the difference between Christ's message, work as high priest in the second apartment, the most holy place, and his ministry in the first apartment before 1844? In other words, what does 1844 mean other than a mathematical puzzle? Well, unless we find an answer, the sanctuary message is just going to dry up. We seldom hear about the sanctuary message anymore. And the challenge is constantly thrown out. Can you prove the the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the sanctuary from the Bible alone? And that includes the investigative judgment without calling in Ellen White to rescue you. The sanctuary is the unique teaching of Seventh-day Adventists that make us different from the Roman Catholic and the evangelical churches or even the Seventh-day Baptists. In other words, how does the sanctuary truth relate to the gospel of justification by faith? Well, we don't have any misgivings. I have often used the Bible to present to non-Seventh-day Adventists the sanctuary message as I have prepared people for baptism. I see it taught throughout the Bible as clearly as I see the Sabbath truth presented there. In fact, the sanctuary truth was recognized by the pioneers of this movement even before they came to recognize the Seventh-day Sabbath truth. Well, some people may say, you are brainwashed and you are naive, but I don't think that I am. At least I'm glad to see people remain lifelong committed Seventh-day Adventists who were won by the sanctuary message. It made us a people distinct from Sunday-keeping evangelicals. Well, why are so many today giving up the sanctuary message? Why, for example, do some say it's a liability? Why do some inwardly doubt or even repudiate it? I must be true to my own conscience as I seek to answer this perplexing question. What those who have left us understood was only a dry, stale doctrine. It was never heart-gripping to them or heart-melting truth. They never learned to love the sanctuary message. It left them just cold and probably worse. It left them dominated by fear. They saw Christ's ministry in the Most Holy Apartment as a very stern tribunal where we are on trial for our very existence, our very life. A rejection slip in the investigative judgment was a consignment to hell, and so the doctrine has been consigned to theological trivia. 
It was happiness-destroying anxiety, but the issue could not be more important for us to understand. The most shocking statement that Ellen White ever made in early writings, page 55 and 56, tells us that if we reject the knowledge of a change in our heavenly high priest ministry in 1844, then we lay ourselves open to a deception of a false Christ posing in the place of the true Christ. And by now, the counterfeit has become so clever that it even spawns Christian spiritualism today. And that's horrifying. Christian spiritualism. And yet we face former prominent Seventh-day Adventist thought leaders who repudiate the insights that are therein. But conscience forces me to say that it may not be their fault that they are confused. People in our past have taught the sanctuary message minus the special enlightenment of the most precious message that God has revealed to us in the Bible. And it's no wonder that in a great degree that it was kept away from both the church and the world, there has been a famine in the land. The dynamic message that God has revealed from the Bible lifts the unique Seventh-day Adventist message out of confusion and it clothes it with the bright garments of Christ's righteousness, which is the gospel seen as very good news. In fact, if it isn't good news, it isn't the gospel. The gospel of justification and the sanctuary must be good news. The Bible reveals the gospel of justification by faith as good news, far beyond the understanding of pastors and leaders who see neither the Sabbath truth nor the sanctuary doctrine nor the truth about the sleeping saints awaiting the resurrection in Christ. God has many honest-hearted people who are in the Sunday-keeping churches who are living up to all of the light that they have, but they just can't see the idea of justification by faith because they don't follow Christ in his closing work of atonement into the most holy apartment. It is really down-to-earth, practical, day-by-day living. The cleansing of the sanctuary is ministered by a more sunlit grasp of justification by faith. So I've learned to love the sanctuary truth so that accusations against it from intellectuals haven't thrown me. I've learned to love the author of the sanctuary truth, and I rest my faith on clear evidence that is solid rock, and I trust him to keep his promise to guide us into all truth. Does that mean that I'm some kind of a naive fanatic? Have I let my poor little emotional heart betray my rational intellect? Am I a deluded fanatic if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the divine Savior of the world? Well, my heart does believe it, yes, but also my intellect believes abundant objective evidence from the Bible on this. And the same is true with the sanctuary truth. Faith believes when some women tell you that Sunday morning that Jesus is risen from the dead. You don't wait to put your fingers in the holes in his hands or in his side, as Thomas insisted. 
According to 1 John 4.16, truth requires a greater commitment than mere intellectual conviction. We have known and believed, it says. And this is how to follow the true Christ into his ministry in the most holy apartment. So how does the dynamic of the most precious message lead us to fall in love with the Seventh-day Adventist sanctuary truth. Let's look at it in practical terms. First of all, you're all familiar with that hymn number 191 in the Red Book hymnal there in front of you. It's entitled Love Divine. It was authored by Charles Wesley, who longed for the truth, yet clearly uh, not clearly understood in his day. And here are the words. His day was 1747, but he was just getting his fingertips on this truth of the sanctuary when he wrote, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Amen. You know, the Wesleys, they were trying to get their fingertips on the sanctuary truth that was informed by the most precious message revealed to us in the 19th century. It will yet lighten the earth with glory. It is the most precious message that the Wesleys could have grasped what they were looking for if it had been revealed. And God is yet going to lighten the earth with the glory of justification by faith and his sanctuary truth, and it will grab the attention of evangelicals who have heretofore spurned it. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary impacts day-to-day living. Yes, your day-to-day living. The idea is dynamite, that it is impossible for the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed or justified or made right, until the hearts of God's people on earth are first cleansed. That is fundamental. Therefore, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is dependent upon a special work performed on earth, and that is the ministry of justification by faith. So it's way beyond the ordinary evangelical understanding of justification by faith, which just is a book transaction done in heaven, not impacting the hearts practically of God's people. It's not merely a legal assumption on God's part. It's not something he knows is not really true about you. When Revelation 14 verse 12 says, here are the patience of the saints, here are they which keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, when Jesus sees that people, it is true. It is reality. These people, in fact, overcome, even as he overcame. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Amen. If no one else will say amen. During the last, they have not been merely legally counted righteous. In reality, they are righteous because they have received the atonement in their hearts. If God just legally counts them righteous, which is contrary to the facts of reality in their life, that would be a fiction. And God doesn't deal with fiction. He deals with realities. During the last 1,800 
years of Christ, first 1800 years of Christ's ministry in the first department after his ascension, at no time did he have a corporate body of believers on earth whose faith had thus matured so that it could be said they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. But now comes a change in 1844. It's a cosmic day of atonement, at one with God, where God, the hearts of God's people are at one with his heart. The heavenly sanctuary is at last cleansed in that now he has a corporate body of people whose hearts are cleansed from every root of enmity and alienation from God. Oh, may the day come soon. The atonement is a full reconciliation with himself all the way down to our toes where we walk. And when John and Charles Wesley were trying to get a grip on this truth, they were bitterly opposed, even by Augustus Toplady, who was the author in that in our hymnal of that lovely hymn, Rock of Ages. We love to sing Rock of Ages. But Top Lady was opposed to this truth of Christian character perfection that John and Charles Wesley were seeking to teach. Why, the very idea of overcoming fully, even as Christ overcame, that has to be fanaticism and label perfectionism. And even today, devout people like Top Lady label this dynamite idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary as impossible perfectionism. Well, if that's the case, if sin cannot be overcome through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the law will continue to be disobeyed throughout eternity. No way. No way. But... The dynamite idea is not that God's people cleanse the sanctuary. And this is truth for me, for you. We do not cleanse the sanctuary. The high priest does it. And you know what a high priest is? A healer of the mind. Do you need a healer of the mind? I do. No, I won't say that you're mentally deficient and retarded. I won't say that you're mentally imbalanced. I am because of sin. And I need a heavenly psychiatrist to heal me of sin that's in my head. Now, if you can say amen, Amen. that's the beginning of coming to the foot of the cross. The beginning of it. But it's the high priest that does the healing, the cleansing. And his people... Stop resisting him in his office work. They stop resisting him. They let him do it. Never does the Bible say that regarding the ancient Israelites that they had to cleanse the sanctuary on their once-a-year day of atonement. No, it was their high priest who cleansed the sanctuary. The high priest always did it. But they cooperated with him. And so we do today. We let him do it. We cooperate with him. And prominent in this dynamite message is this idea of ceasing to resist our Lord. 
Ellen White caught the idea not only, not until after the 1888 conference did she state it so clearly in Steps to Christ, page 27. The sinner may resist this love, may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist, he will be drawn to Jesus in repentance for his sins. Now, that is the essence of the cleansing of the sanctuary. That's the cleansing of the sanctuary idea. The Lord does it by his drawing love, giving us the gift of repentance, and we let him do it. We cooperate with him. We stop resisting him. It's good news, dear friends. It's better than most Adventists have ever thought it is. In early 1890s, Ellen White was moved to write a series of articles in the Review and Herald that linked the dynamite idea of justification by faith with the work of Christ in the most holy apartment, and she directly related it to the most precious message of that day. And I'll just quote one statement from her where she says, We are in the Day of Atonement, And we are to work in harmony with Christ's work of cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people. Let no man who desires to be found with the wedding garment on resist our Lord in his office work. To answer our question in very simple terms, before 1844, Christ's high priestly ministry was preparing believers to die so that they could be accounted worthy for the first resurrection. You know, that is a wonderful work for Jesus to do. And by all means, if death is at the doorstep, confess your sins so that you may be accounted worthy to come up in the resurrection. You may be prepared. But Christ's ministry, dear friends, in the second apartment prepares a people to be translated without tasting death. While they're still here in the flesh, they must see Jesus eye to eye, meet him face to face, look in his eyes, which only the pure in heart can ever endure. And they are those, Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, who remain until alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. They are the remnant caught up together with the resurrected saints of all ages to meet the Lord in the air. Now, according to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus was giving the signs of the times, day uh, of the last generation, it was heaven's purpose that the generation who saw all of those last celestial signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earthquakes, the signs of Jesus' near return, the folks that saw all of that back in the 18th and 19th centuries should have seen Jesus come in their day. That was heaven's design. And that was the pioneers' blessed hope. And so the delay cannot make sense unless it's due to the fact that we have resisted the Lord in his office work. The gospel commission could have been accomplished within a few years before 1900. 
The delay in finishing the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is not due to some backlogs in the computer records of heaven or to angels being inefficient or a grandfatherly unconcern on the part of our heavenly Father. The delay in the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and the second coming of Jesus lies squarely with God's people. The 1888 idea imparts a new motivation for following Christ. The motivation is the love, the agape of Christ, constraineth us. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 5.14. And fear of the investigative judgment is cast out. Did you hear me? When love constraineth us, fear of the investigative judgment is cast out. And this, again, is a cosmic day of atonement and at last realized oneness with Christ. It delivers us from fear as much as he himself was delivered from it in his life on this earth. And the sanctuary truth leads the bride of Christ to make herself ready. That oneness has never happened in all past history until the marriage of the Lamb is come. It's a special blessing is pronounced upon those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as individuals, all, including those of the last days, all are guests at the wedding. But as a corporate body, the church of the great day of oneness becomes the bride of Christ. The bride. And from the most holy apartment is ministered this gift of repentance. In order for this dilatory bride to make herself ready, she must welcome that disclosure of her true need, which comes through the gift of repentance. The bride is a body. Therefore, her repentance is to be a systemic repentance throughout the whole body from top on down. And because she overcomes, even as Christ overcame, she shares fully by faith his own experience of repentance, systemic repentance. He repented in behalf of the human race, Jesus. And so does his bride. She learns that lesson too. He tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2.19 She can't do that. The bride can't taste death for every man, but she can identify with Jesus on his cross as he does so with her and the world. She has now grown up. She's to grow up. She too would rather die eternally than bring shame and disgrace upon Jesus. And in the day of atonement, she learns to grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. She no longer thinks about herself and prays about herself all the time. She thinks only of Jesus all of the time and that he gets his reward. And though our great high priest cleanses the sanctuary, we let him do it. He cannot force the bride to get ready. Charles, could you force Kenesha to get ready for the wedding? She had to do it. She had to make herself ready. 
and now she's blushing. <laughs> it's just a practical illustration. Jesus can't force you to get ready for the wedding. He can't force us as a systemic body. What happens is that we're won by his love, and we reflect it back to him. No bride in history could make his bride ready for her wedding. And that's something she alone has ever done. And the new agape motivation, the new concern developed for the honor of Christ in the great controversy, the new covenant experience of identifying with Christ on his cross, this prompts the world church to a new awareness of her unique duty today. It's not a work that is performed to love Jesus back in order to be saved. Oh no, it's not an egocentric motivation. It is a concern for Christ like that of a bride for a loving husband who needs her. Jesus needs this bride. He cannot win his great controversy with Satan without this bride. And so, it's a new covenant motivation. It's not a work performed in order to be saved. The idea of Christ being in that need is implicit in the sanctuary message. Something is greater than our personal concern for ourselves. Oh, if I only get myself into heaven, that'd be, that's all I'm worried about. We finally overcome that. And fall in love with Jesus so that he receives the reward for which he died. Well, should you and I be afraid of the judgment? Is it like some kind of a final exam that students face? The kind where they cram the night before, you know, and they come to it trembling with fear? There is a judgment that comes before Christ returns. Absolutely, the Bible teaches it. Otherwise, he could not bring his reward with him. To give every man according as his work shall be. Revelation 22, verse 12. And before there can be a resurrection, there must be an accounting, which is a judgment to determine who is accounted worthy to come up in that most glorious of blessings, the first resurrection. There has to be a judgment before the advent. Otherwise, the angels won't know who to resurrect in the first resurrection. They need to know ahead of time before they come with Jesus, to do the resurrection at his bidding. But can we know anything about when that pre-advent judgment is to take place? Does the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8.14 make any sense? It sure does. That's when it commenced in 1844. The Day of Atonement in the Hebrew sanctuary service was an object lesson of that final pre-advent judgment. The Lord did not intend that its purpose should be to condemn Israel or the people. The Bible says that on that day shall the high priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. And the purpose precisely of the investigative judgment is not to condemn God's people, but to cleanse them so that they can meet Jesus in person when he comes. There is sin. It's conscious and unconscious. That must be discovered. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. 
reveal it, and then repented of and overcome, so that those who follow the great high priest in his closing work of atonement may not be consumed by the brightness of Jesus' coming. You know, when Jesus comes and the brightness of his coming, that's going to be a very serious moment. A very serious moment. And the high priest absolutely does not want to condemn you. He wants to vindicate you. And that's the only judgment that Jesus wants to make in your case. In fact, the investigative judgment is to vindicate you, not to condemn you. So don't stop him. Don't don't hinder him in his ongoing work. The dynamite idea of the sanctuary truth also clarifies our prayers. It's useless to pray, Lord, make your bride get ready. It's useless to pray, Lord, make your bride get ready. Because the Lord can't do that. The Lord can't do that. And if we pray for the latter rain, which is good, respect for the Lord would require that we recognize that he already tried to give us the beginning over a century ago. And to keep begging a friend to give you a gift he's been trying to give you seems to be rather rude. And we can pray individually that he will help us to understand what was the initial gift of the latter rain. The initial gift of the latter rain was rock-solid truth. Not more jumping up and down and hop-skipping and jumping. The beginning of the latter rain was rock-solid truth. But we are told that our refusal initially to receive the gift constituted our initial refusal to receive rock-solid truth was an insult to the Holy Spirit. So should not our prayers now be especially reverent? Shouldn't they be respectful? Shouldn't they be filled with some degree of knowledge about what we are praying for as far as the latter rain is concerned? Some kind of understanding? Instead of just blah, blah, blahing all kinds of words? To come back to our initial question, what is the difference between the work of the great high priest in the first apartment and his work in the second apartment? Before our Day of Atonement, the great high priest could cleanse human hearts only of known sin. Before 1844, he could only cleanse those believers' hearts of known sin. But there lies a very deeper layer of unknown sin that exists that the Holy Spirit wants to show. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. It was King Hezekiah. The Bible describes him as the perfect king. Well, He said, 
that he had served the Lord with a perfect heart. That was his own self-appellation. But he had a layer of unknown sin beneath what he was aware of regarding himself. He was just so sure, according to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 3, I have done that which is good in thy sight. And I think that Hezekiah was utterly sincere when he uttered those words. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 30 and 31, Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. Howbeit, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. That's a lesson for us about the reality of unknown sin that lies beneath the surface in our hearts. Sometimes the Lord permits us to receive trials so that we can know what we don't know about our hearts. And so while Hezekiah turned his face to the wall sobbing and he was just begging God, oh Lord, don't let me die. There was deep sin that was hidden in his heart that he sincerely didn't know. And it came out only at the end of his life and it brought ruin to his kingdom after his death. And the Day of Atonement message to Laodicea pinpoints for us that same thou knowest not problem. Laodicea has a knowest not problem. To disclose it to us, that's Jesus' specialty. To disclose it to us, that's Jesus. It has to be a revelation from him because you'll never discover it on your own. What is it? What is it? What is that secret that we don't know about ourselves that's beneath our radar, our awareness? That secret is the sin of murdering the Son of God. That's the enmity. That's the alienation from God. You can read about it in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, 1. And that same corporate but unrealized sin that the whole world shares, Laodicea does not understand. And we kneel before we go, to sleep at night and we confess and we claim, according to 1 John 1, 9, that the dear Lord, please forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the point of the cleansing of the sanctuary is that he cannot cleanse from sin that we're not aware of. He cannot cleanse us of sin that we're not aware of. And therefore, If we're not aware of it, we cannot confess it meaningfully or understandably. And so, an objective atonement, Jesus' death on the cross, must become one that we experience. We're living in the time of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Christ is conducting a cosmic day of atonement, performing a last solemn work of reconciliation. It's the most awesome concluding of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. He's totally concerned with the 
grandest crisis that heaven has ever witnessed. Every question in this long-standing great controversy must now be settled. 6,000 years of human history are now to be resolved. And Jesus, as the world's Savior and as our high priest, our heavenly psychiatrist, he needs the wholehearted cooperation of all on earth who sympathize with him in this unprecedented crisis. What say you? On the ancient day of atonement in Israel, the people on that annual day never drank one drop of alcohol. On that annual day of atonement, Israel never drank one drop of alcohol. Why? So that they could keep their minds clear to follow their earthly priest in his most solemn ministry of reconciliation. So, dear friends, today, those who are following the great heavenly high priest in his ministry of reconciliation, they don't go out and drive their cars down the freeway drunk. They don't live their life in a stupor. They live every day alcohol-free so that they can have a mind that God can reveal his truth to. Don't you think we should be telling the world about this Day of Atonement? The earth is going to be lightened with it. The sanctuary message that the Lord in his great mercy sent to us must and it will yet lighten the earth with glory according to Revelation 18.1 and the world and the evangelical world is waiting for a right understanding of the Adventist sanctuary truth in view of justification by faith and the cross. Will you be part of it? That would make Jesus' heart so glad if you would. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.